Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Our guest this week has forgotten more encounters with fame than most people have ever had. Anton Mullen was a rising star of Liverpool's music scene in the 1960s with his band, The Trilogy, and even signed a contract with EMI, but his heavy drinking got in the way of his success. Now recovered, he has had a fascinating career in television and the music industry, all helped along by a wise piece of advice given to him by John Lennon. I'm Ellen Kerwin. And I'm Laura Davis, and this is Beatles City. So Ellen, I was listening back to your interview with Anton and he's had such a fascinating life. Yeah, he's done pretty much everything from writing scripts on CBBS and writing little jingles for kids to writing hit number one songs in America. So that was number one in in the country charts in America. So yeah, he's he's done plenty to be proud of. And he had a bit of a hiatus in his career, didn't he? Because he had quite a serious drinking problem. How did that affect him? So I think he he just couldn't do his best work while he was drunk, and he 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 told me that there are literal you know blackout times in his memory where he he knows that something's gone on, and you know he's played a really good gig, but he's gotten off the stage and forgotten everything straight away. So he's probably had more even more great stories than what he talked to me about, but he just can't remember them. So we've got what he can remember, and even they are great anyway on their own. Yeah, he definitely has. Many, many good stories, even though he's forgotten half. <laughs> yeah. So I'm here in the Beatles City studio in the Liverpool Echo newsroom with Anton Mullen. That's Hi, me. Anton. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming in today. Excuse my posh accent there, but uh, <laughs> I moved away from Liverpool 40 years ago. So. so tell me, take me right back. When did you very first start playing? First start playing? Well, um, I first started playing guitar in the... Um, sort of late 50s um, and um, I joined school bands and things in about 59, 60. But I did my first gig at the Grafton Rooms here um, in 1961. And was that as yourself or was that in a band? It was in a band, yeah. It was just a school band. I can't even remember what we called ourselves, mm-hmm. but uh, we were just playing the old skiffle stuff and a couple of... Uh, couple of Buddy Holly songs and things, you know, which is what all the bands did in those days, as you possibly know. So is that what it was like, you know, back then? Was it mainly just covers? Would people just pick up yeah. and have do yeah. it for fun? Yeah, there was... I don't think there was anybody until really the Beatles started in about 62, 63 to write their own stuff. Before that, it, and the Beatles as well, when they were playing in Hamburg, they were doing covers, same as ever, Rory Storm... Or you know, or Jerry, all the bands they were doing, inspired by Skiffle, you know, from the from the from the fifties. But um, J- John Lennon once said to me, "I was out for a quote, eh? <laughs> Anton, suss out your audience. So you know, work out your audience. What do they want?" And I've remembered that all my life. Um, but in those days, bands were playing um, cover versions of stuff that was popular in America. 
because it was the American scene that had come over here. And in Liverpool, it was a lot of the sailors that brought uh, discs over. So that's what brought a lot of the American music over here to Liverpool. So that's absolutely fascinating. How did it happen? How did it come about for John Lennon to tell you that? Um, well, in those days, uh, what I have to apologise for straight away is um, I haven't had a, a drink of alcohol since 1986. But the 20 years before that, I'm afraid, uh, I do remember certain things and I have some good stories as well. But my brain is a bit foggy about, you know, because apparently I was an amazingly successful drinker. <laughs> I, used to, I lived in the Savoy Hotel, darling, don't you know, at one point. But uh, <laughs> um, but where was John? Um, well, in, in those days, we all used to play... Um, uh, clubs, you know, like the Blue Angel, the Beehive, the Jacaranda, the Peppermint Lounge, the Iron Door, the Cavern, of course. Uh, that's the famous name, but, you know, I mean, I used to like the Peppermint Lounge myself, you know. But um, and when when lots of the bands had played at all the clubs, they used to gather together often at the uh, Blue Angel because the Blue Angel was staying open much later than other clubs were. It still does now. It still stays open quite late. Well, that's it. And... Yeah. Um, and so it was just one of those chats where um, I was in a band called the Zeniths from the very early 60s. And uh, a lifelong friend of mine, Greg Latham, and another friend, um, Mike Conboy. And we, we, we were, you know, really good mates since. But uh, we played, um, I think we were doing 32 Chuck Berry cover songs. Can you imagine that? 32. <laughs> and I think that was the night that, um, and, and it's hard to imagine nowadays, but in the in a sort of mid-60s, there was a, a, a word going around that rock and roll was on its way out. And it's hard to imagine nowadays that rock and roll could have gone. But, and that was one of the times that, that I think John was saying, you know, we were doing 32, Anton, suss out your audience, you know, do they want to listen to 32 Chuck Berry numbers? Yeah. So was that him telling you to write your own material? Um, I think he was... It did inspire me, because yeah. I did. Uh, we formed a band called the called Trilogy after that that became very popular. But, um, yeah, I think it was just that... I love expressions. One of my favourites is fate swings on tiny hinges. You know, you leave the door, you turn left, you get run over. You turn right, you join the Beatles. Or, or you get something told to you that says, you know do this um, and what if you want a story about the Blue Angel uh, right uh, I think I might have mentioned it when we rambled on the phone um, because the Blue Angel closed so late we used to be starving afterwards so we used to go to that famous uh, takeaway place on the pier head called the hole in the wall and in those days there was this huge guy massive big shoulders but he would only open this tiny window to serve everybody because you know in case of any trouble there was a lot of trouble on the pier <laughs> yeah. head in those days and we were teenage boys and we were i think we were kind boys but you know it was a bit uh you think you're going to live forever when you're a teenager <laughs> and um anyway there we were having our bacon butties we just got in the, in the white van you know and and we were, the wind was blowing on the pier head and everything it was all and there was an old tramp that used to love tipping the, the cups that people had left on the side. He used to tip them all onto the floor. He used to go along with his stick and just tip them. Like that. But anyway, we could hear this 
is shouting, this uh, amazing uh, boy and girl shouting at each other in a mixture of languages. And um, this is the mid-60s, isn't it? So in the early 60s, I'd actually sort of run away from home a bit um, and went to live with the gypsies in, in northern Scotland. So I had a hint of um, Romany in my brain at the time. And I could hear this girl screaming in Romany and the guy shouting back at her in Swedish, or, you know, and shouting at each other English. Anyway, we, we were a bit concerned, so we got out, you know, the way you would be in teenage boys in the mid-60s. We got out uh, to see what was going on. And this girl had a knife and she was going for the guy. So luckily, as I say, being teenage boys, we managed to get the knife off the girl, got rid of it, scooted her off and got the guy in the van to make sure he was safe. And understandably, he was, he was fairly grateful. And he said, I'd like to thank you all. Spoke amazing English. I'd like to thank you all for saving my life. And to thank you, I'm going to tell you all your futures. Wow. I know, we were... We're thinking, oh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> anyway, he set off, and he was telling us our stars. He says, you are Aquarius, which I am. Mm -hmm. And he said, and from now on, um, you will be, how do we phrase this tactfully? You will be approached by lots of ladies. <laughs> He's, and I tell you what, from then on, it wasn't safe for me to come out the dressing room. Wow. And the band wasn't that famous, but I was getting attacked, and it was bizarre. But he also said... A uh, couple of other things. But then he said, and you will do this and that, and you will do pretty well. He said, but your huge success is only going to come late in your life. And there was this wind blowing on the head, you know, and, I'm and we're thinking. Oh, a little bit spooky. It was very spooky. <laughs> yeah. And so back then, even before the Beatles had taken off, did you... Did you know, did you have an inkling that, you know, when John Lennon was talking to you, that he was going to become who he was going to become? No. No. Because um, in the very early 60s, Rory Storm, well, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, Rory Storm and the Hurricane, um, he, um, he um, was amazing, Rory. His real name was Alan Caldwell. and But he didn't have, he didn't want to... I mean, John and Paul had really ambitions. They wanted to reach high, you know. But Alan, Rory, didn't. He, he was quite happy. He loved doing the... He was like the number one act in Liverpool. But he loved doing the shows. But he loved running. He was a very keen runner. And he didn't particularly want to leave Liverpool and become famous, even though he had a terrible stutter as well. And in fact, oh gosh, a few years late, well, many years later than that, in the 60s, creeping into the 70s, um, he became a DJ. And, um, you know, a lot of the Liverpool bands, as you know, used to work in Hamburg and the Channel Islands, Jersey. And we used to go there. And we were doing a summer, summer season in Jersey, my band then. And Rory was a DJ. <laughs> in one of the hotels nearby. And that was, this is a very sad story, that was the the time his dad died. don't know if you ever heard that story about it. No. Well, yeah, and he was, you know, he was absolutely, and his mum, they were just obsessed with the dad. And when he died, he was drinking brandy 
I was all, all night and crying on my shoulder, saying, me poor dear dad, me poor dear dad. And he was absolutely gutted and he wanted to go back. So he left Jersey the next day or two and went back to, to Liverpool, home here. And um, tragically, a couple of days later, both him and his mum were found dead at their home. And the assumption was that they both committed suicide because they'd lost the dad. But, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a word amongst his friends, you know, that Rory was on, like, a sleep medication and maybe just had a bit of drink as well. And yeah. then when his mum found him the next day, you wouldn't blame her if she then committed suicide. So so going back to your original question, forgive my rambling. No, um, it's fine. You were saying about, you know, John and Paul. And but was there ever, friends. you know, any, was there ever an essence that they were going to be amazing? Being what they were. Or was it almost that they were ten a penny back then because there were so many bands in Liverpool? There were so many. Yeah. Yeah, there were, as you know, um, all the bands, Jerry and the Pacemakers, yeah. you know, all those, the Fortunes, the Foremost, the, the Sandgrounders from Southport, you know. Um, um, I think, as we said, that favourite expression of mine, fate swings on tiny hinges, you know, if Brian Epstein hadn't been persuaded to go down to the cavern and seen the Beatles, then what would fate swinging on tiny hinges have done for them? Would maybe have, you know, went to another pub and seen somebody else playing or... Well, yeah, he, he was absolutely obsessed with them, you know, and thought that, because uh, he ran our own NEMS, you know. The, yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, the Beatles then took off. Um, but I think partly they were building their future on the belief that Paul had in him. And then they met George Martin, who was amazing and very encouraging. I think that they would have inevitably done well, but I don't think they would have achieved the global success without Epi, about Brian Epstein. Yeah. Um, and... You know, that when when you get encouraged by things, by events, it then creates more neural pathways in your brain down which flows more creativity. So I think when they were really starting to take off, they suddenly started to really believe in themselves. It, so. it is really fascinating as somebody, you know, around, uh, around that time. What were they like as people? Did you know them well enough to... Not perfectly well, no. no. Um, it... it yeah, uh, Richie, uh, Ringo, yeah. was um, um, Rory's drummer, you know, so I knew him then. And uh, it was a very sad... Are you listening to this? Um, it was a very sad story. I, I left um, this area in 1976 because I met um, a very successful American lady called Diane Solomon, who you won't know, but she was a massive star. She had her own television series in the 70s. Um, and I very naughtily moved down to Bristol with her. It, you know, it, it changed an awful lot of things for me there and started writing more for television. Did you fall, fall out of love with music, maybe? It, would, you, would you say that? No, I don't think so. I think, as I said, our band Trilogy was one of the first bands to do all original songs because even in the late 60s, would an audience want to listen to a song that they'd never heard before, that you'd just written? It would have to be really good, you know. And 
immodestly says he, trilogy was really good. You know, we had a, a Dr. Rock. Well, his name is Keith Livingstone. Dr. Livingstone, so he's called Dr. Rock. The trilogy became Greg Latham on the bass, me on guitar and vocals, and Greg, great vocalist too. Dr. Rock, Keith Livingstone on the drums, and Mike Conboy. So it's called Trilogy, but there was four of us. <laughs> Mike Conboy as well. But we were doing all original stuff and were huge on the university circuit. And we got invited to stand in for the Rolling Stones, you know. Wow, that's incredible. When uh, did that happen? Um, was that the Liverpool Philharmonic? It must have been like 71. A long, long story about that. But um, so Trilogy, you know, there has been who never were. And it was my fault. I hold my hand up, you know, because of my drinking and then leaving in the, in the mid-70s. Uh, we uh, we actually had um, one of our old fans, even at my age, you know, sent a photograph of or a copy of a photograph from a newspaper, which showed me and the boys signing a contract with EMI, the head of EMI called Lou Fine in those days, and I didn't ever remember signing it. Wow! So can you imagine yeah. having had a contract with EMI that you didn't remember signing? And was that just because of the drink? The drink, it, it got, yeah. It yeah. got ahead of you. Yeah. Apparently I flew to uh, South Africa with Shirley Bassey's manager one year because we were good mates. And, we, and apparently we got really drunk and said, let's go to South Africa. And I don't remember anything about it, except I sent a, um, a postcard back from the Nairobi Hilton <laughs> so <laughs> with my writing on it. So it was, I probably was there. But to sign, to sign with EMI, I mean... Think of the people, you know, they've know. they've also had on their books and you just can't remember. No, I didn't remember um, and wasn't, I mean, the boys must have been trying to get me to do things because I was writing. You were writing the songs. Songs. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I just, it just started at quite an early stage because in the late 50s, uh, I played um, like classical guitar and I studied guitar with Gordon Monroe, who was a jazz guitarist. So I had a bit of everything and I started Writing quite a lot. Even in the early 60s, I was coming up with uh, bits of songs. And then when it got into the mid-late 60s, we started including some of them in, in the itinerary, and they were going really well. And so I thought, hmm, really. So what was, like, the biggest audience or the biggest gig you ever performed? In those days, um, well, there'd be university gigs because you would get... Oh, Five, six, seven thousand people at a university gig, which was, you know, because the clubs in Liverpool, you know, they would only hold a few hundred people yeah, squashed in, yeah. you know. Um, and you would play, we used to play like in Southport, uh, the Floral Hall and things, they were quite big, and the, the Tower Ballroom, you know, we used to play in Blackpool. So they would be quite big audiences, but probably the university circuits would be the biggest ones. But the biggest audience I played to, uh, in recent years, was talking about songs. And when I became a pensioner in nine, uh, 20, uh, well, 2012, was it? I was, that's nine years ago, isn't it? That's when I became 65. Um, I got a phone call. I'd known a guy called John Velasco for many, many years, since those early days, because, you know, a lot of people are in the music business to make the music, and a lot of people are in the music business to make the money. And I'm not saying all, I've got some really good mates who are massive promoters and producers and, you know, all the rest of it. But, and they're really kind, some of them. But in those days, there was a bit of, uh, a bit of naughtiness amongst, you know, yeah. 
you know, where you stand depends on where you sit. And they wanted a big slice of himself. But John Velasco, I've known him for many years. And he phoned me up in 2012. So Anton, he said, this is the man who signed ABBA, you know. <laughs> Anton, said, I want you to do me a favour. I want you to put together a band for Wembley Arena. I thought, well, I haven't played a stadium for years, you know. And I said, why? He said, well, I've discovered this young girl called Ali Isabella. Yeah, 16. And she's going to do Wembley Arena? I said, yeah, it's a country festival. And she's working with Reba McIntyre. Lone Star, you know. So I said, okay, what's the, but money is no object. Well, how often do you hear that? So I got like, uh, you know, David Barry's keyboard player and <laughs> I, I put a really good, ba- but I play bass because I got to, I, over the years I've mentored quite, I love helping people out, you know, because you make your living by what you get, but you make your life by what you give. So put this band together and we rehearsed and everything and she flew over from New York and he said, oh, and write her a hit song. So, I mean, I've been, work- I've been working for television for 40 years, you know. I've been in bands, you know, still, um, but I hadn't really done an awful lot song-wise. Anyway, I was thinking of what John said, suss out your audience, and I thought, well, who is this young girl? She's a 16-year-old kid from New York. Obviously, fairly well-to-do if her parents know John Velasco. They yeah. live in Brownsville, New York, you know. <laughs> Sarth so said she's a New York City girl. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, but she loves riding and all that. So she's a country girl. So I got this title, New York City Country Girl. I put it down as a demo and sent the demo off. And um, a, a good friend of mine who used to drive me a lot called Tim Fish, he played pedal steel in it. He was about to leave the studio and he said, I said, oh, Tim, before you go, can you just put some pedal steel on this track? He said, what is it? It was just a demo. He said, well, I don't know what it is. He's posh. Yeah. Mm. So he put this, put this pedal steel track on it. Anyway, we sent it off to New York. He said, that's a bit rough, Anton. I said, no, it's great. It'll do all right, you know. So uh, got to New York. They put her vocal on it. And it went to number one. Wow. And the US Billboard Hot 100 country singles. That is crazy. So, you know, it was only meant to be a demo. And they were saying, it's the best engineered track on the album. You know, well, you wouldn't let me engineer the podcast, you know. <laughs> But uh, so, you know, you just you just never know. Well, you've still got it then quite clearly, haven't you? Well, <laughs> makes you think. But the year after that, 2013, Jerry and the Pacemakers and the Fortunes and the Searchers were doing a 50th year anniversary of their lives. Mm-hmm. And they came to, to Bristol, which is where I was living then. And I got invited to the show. And after the show, we all got together and they were all saying to me, oh, Anton, you've just had an American number one. Can you write us a song? <laughs> I think, I wish this was 50 years ago. You <laughs> Yeah, that's nuts. And also, didn't you also find some record, records not long ago that George Martin was interested in? Um, it was actually a, a cassette tape. Yeah. I'd had connections with George Martin and he really liked a lot of my stuff and wanted me to work on it with Paul, Paul McCartney. And um, it's one of those things we never got around to. We never got around to to doing. Um, I did introduce a very, very dear friend of mine, Sarah Klaas, uh to George, and she worked with him for for uh, for many years until George sadly passed away. But we never got around to finishing the things. But there's still talk about it. There's still talk about. Yeah, because you obviously you put a bit of work into it, so you have got the cassettes there. With yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's and there's some there's some good songs there that uh, we might get together. Are oh, the ro- the rock and roll is? Oh. 
No, they were more... Um, they were, it was more thoughtful stuff. There's one called Prayer for an Atheist, which, oh. is, which is an interesting song. And funny enough, one of my old friend's wives died oh, in the early 80s, you know, uh, and her favourite song in the world, because she'd got a cassette of it, just of me, was Prayer for an Atheist. And I was invited to go to her celebratory event after her funeral. And they had all these famous bands playing, you know. And I had to start the show with Prayer for an Atheist. I was so moved. So, yeah, there's some songs. On, they, call them, they call them Anton's Epics. Because over the years, there have been lots of songs that I either haven't let be used or I've, not, I've just kept on the shelf. But now I've got my studio together in Cornwall, where we live, because uh, you know my daughter was in a very sad health condition. She's doing amazingly well at the moment. Good, I'm glad to hear, because uh, I know last week um, you were unable to come down. That's right. She yeah. was uh, she was airlifted in an ambulance, which saved her life. Uh, and she's got two little kids and a wonderful husband. And my wife, Catherine, um, they all live down there. Shane and the two kids, Ted, uh, Ted and Isla. So I've been working quite a bit over the last few years, sort of on kid patrol sometimes, you know. Uh, but now they're at school and I've got, Shane's built me a studio in the grounds of where we live, you know. So I'll be able to get some work going. Well, would you like, would you like to, make, you know, give some of these songs to Liverpool bands or would you like to see them out there? Yeah, would love to, yeah. And um, that'd be really good if there's... Um, and I was contacted this year by... Uh, a guy who owns an indie record label called Surgery Records, who had heard whispers about Trilogy from the 70s, late 60s, 70s, and wanted us to put out an album. And I'd actually got the three or four boys together in Bristol 15 years ago to see if we could get something going with a friend of mine called Steve Elliott who wanted to produce it. Worked on a lot of kids' projects together, me and Steve. Um, anyway, we um, uh, we put these rough back tracks down, but we never got around to finishing them. And when I got that phone call earlier this year, any chance of doing some trilogy songs, I, I man managed to finish them in my new studio and sent them off. And they're now available, a lot of these songs, are now available on you know all those worldwide Spotify. All those, all, so it's out there now, trilogy's out there again. But yes, I mean, I've got songs that are, are still waiting in the wings. Waiting for the right person. Would you ever take yeah. them up yourself, or would you prefer maybe some someone taking them on? I think I'm 73 in February, you know. And although it's never too late to be what you might have been, I like to see people do things perhaps better than I could. You know, there's one song called "What We're Going to Do for an Encore." That do you know Andrew Lansell? No? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's yeah. quite famous Liverpool. They did a demo of my my daughter singing it. And uh, he loves it. But we used it as... I was asked to do the music for a, uh, a show called Norma Jean, the musical. And Norma Jean was Marilyn Monroe's name. So I did the music for that about four years ago, or some of the music for it. And um, we put it on in London with Joanne Clifton from Strictly. Yeah, She was playing Marilyn. They persuaded me to let them use, the people that put the show on, to let them use what are we going to do for an encore. And the Lloyd Webber's boys came along to see it his company really useful friends of mine you know, and they said encore is the most stunning way they'd ever heard to end a musical 
What a compliment. And so I'm looking for the right person to sing what we're going to do for an encore because we want to launch the show again, but we need to get the songs out there first. And I've never let that song be used. So how did you go about getting so many, you know, contacts and friends within the industry? Well, it's just Liverpool, isn't it? I'm a sound grad, I'm a self-port, you know. <laughs> no, no, but we, we, I like people and I like to help people as well. Um, and I think over the years, I, from, from meeting all the Epstein people and then meeting John Velasco, when I, met, when I had my girlfriend, Dan Solomon, I met uh, John King, who was very eminent. And that, I've got an, another expression. Once you're in the corridor, doors will open. But until you're in the corridor, you're outside the building and you're a nuisance. So how do you get into the corridor? There'll be, there may be aspiring musicians listening to this back. How, how well, do how that? do you get into the corridor? You can only really get into the corridor either by incredible good luck, someone's left the door open, you know, or they've just had a nice warm cup of coffee mm-hmm. and they listen to your email. Feeling grateful. Yeah. Or you get someone who's a door opener to open the door for you. And that's what I've tried to do for people over the years, to, to help people get in the corridors. Um, some names I can't mention. It is about talking with somebody who can talk to someone that the people inside trust. And, well, have you ever, you know, listened to the, the bands of Liverpool today? Would you ever try and help any of them? I'd, I'd love to. Do you know, I haven't, because I've lived in uh, Bristol for the last 40 years, you know, and I've been working in television, I've been a bit out of contact with the Liverpool scene, but... Um, now I'm coming back up, up here more often. I'd be very keen to, to see what I could do, you know, because the Liverpool wave went out in the early 60s. It was like, it was like a wave had gone. And, you know, in those days, Lon- London, which is where all the power was, it was so far away from Liverpool, you know, that that power and all that contact went. What's probably one of your favourite stories from back then? Or one of your fondest memories? Fondest memories? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Um, I do remember... I've got a very, very wonderful guitar known as the Reverend Hush, which um, I'm not sure I'm allowed to tell the story. But anyway, um, one one time there were, we were working with Neil Sedaka. And um, his guitarist had broken his guitar. And so they sent round a, a message to me where we were and saying, because in those days, sometimes even the big stars would be in contact with you, you know, and say, oh, I really need a special guitar. Can you bring one back? So I brought round my reverend, his Gibson guitar, you know, you know, the two main Gibsons and Fenders, you know. But my Gibson... Oh, Anyway, I took it round, and Neil Sadaka was waiting there in the wing, and he was so grateful because it meant his guitarist would have this special. So he said, "Oh," and Donny said, "Here's a, here's a monitor, you know, a monitor speaker for you, in the wings. You can watch the show." He said, "And what would you like to hear in the monitor? You can have a mix of anything." I said, "Just you and the piano, please, Neil." And I've never forgotten that, that story. You know that he was so kind are so grateful so well thank you very much for coming into the studio and talking to me it's been my enormous pleasure <laughs> there's a lot more stories but <laughs> but thank you very much 
If you've enjoyed this episode of Beatles City, please remember to review, rate and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, where you can also find all episodes from our first two series. And in some exciting news, all episodes of Series 1, including an exclusive interview with Paul McCartney, can now be found on the Liverpool Echoes YouTube channel. Join us next week when we'll be taking a tour of Liverpool's Beatles statues and discovering the fascinating stories behind them.